For an author, getting on a bestsellers list isn't just a badge of honor or something you can slap on the front of your dust jacket. It can make your whole career. One feature on the right list at the right time and your sales aren't the only thing that skyrockets. So does your credibility and all the perks that go along with it. Doors open for you. Your name suddenly means something. And if you're really lucky, it might just clinch a movie deal for you. Fame, potential fortune, and the chance to never have to worry about going back to your crummy, underpaid office job hangs in the balance. And that sounds pretty seductive. So seductive that a number of people have even lied, stolen, and cheated just to secure their best-selling title, including a couple of notable politicians. But we'll get to that later. The thing is, Unlike the name implies, getting on a bestseller list isn't just about selling the most copies in a given week. And getting on THE list? That's a labyrinth of obscurities on its own. So let's see if we can navigate a little bit of it and see what we uncover. Welcome to Margin Comments, the show about books and storytelling. Kind of. I'm your host, Kat Chesbu, and I realized I actually didn't say that in the first episode, so... Hello for the second and kind of the first time. It's nice to meet you. Today, as you might have guessed, we're talking about bestseller lists and not just how they come together behind the scenes, but what that means for authors and ultimately consumers. Bestseller lists in America have changed a lot over the years. The first one, published in 1895 by the Bookman Literary Journal, remains the only comprehensive source of annual bestsellers in the United States from 1895 until 1912, when publishers weekly began circulating their own bestseller list. Now, these are more or less what we would call a trade publication, meaning it's a publication written with a specific trade or profession in mind. It is written by professionals for professionals. For this episode, I'm not really interested in talking about trade publications. Instead, let's hop over to New York and fast forward to October of 1935 when the New York Times released its first bestseller list. This list wasn't for editors or publishing houses to look over. This list was for the readers themselves, or at least the readers of the New York Times. Although they started small, listing only five bestseller books for fiction and nonfiction in New York City, it didn't take long for them to expand their scope. In the second month of its publication, the New York Times addressed eight cities with their own lists. But it would be a few years before their first national list debuted in the Sunday New York Times Book Review in April of 1942. By the 1950s, the New York Times bestseller list was the bell of the ball and had become the most recognized and revered list in the nation. There are other ones, of course. Bestseller lists with their own significant followings and cachet like USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, or even Oprah's Book Club. You'll certainly see those names embossed on covers in your local bookstore or splashed across author websites, but no one has ever really managed to match the power and prestige that the New York Times has held on to for close to a century. For better or worse, they've become an intrinsic part of America's literary history, woven right into the fabric of the industry. They're that girl, the Jackie O of what's fashionable to read. And for that reason, you'll be hearing a lot about them in this episode, but not just them. If the New York Times bestseller list represents our literary past, well, then it's no secret who's vying for the spot to represent our future. Amazon revolutionized the way we bought books when they founded their dot-com in 1996. 
changed the face of self-publishing with Kindle Direct in 2007, and then another decade later, launched Amazon Charts in 2017. Now, it's important to note that Amazon Charts and the New York Times bestseller lists aren't direct competitors in the world of lists that explain who sells the most of what. In fact, Amazon's bestseller list is kind of its own thing entirely and not just because it only tracks sales in their marketplace. It's also because of just how many bestsellers they have. You see, while publications like the New York Times may divide lists between fiction and nonfiction, hardcover or mass market paperback and so on, Amazon gets a little bit more specific. There's the main list, of course, the one that ranks the overall bestselling books on Amazon from one to a hundred. And then there's the list tied to individual genres. But even those genres have subgenres, and each of those sub or sub sub genres has a number one bestseller slot. Now, this isn't some open air nefarious plot by Amazon to flood the industry with so-called bestsellers. That's just kind of how the data collection cookie crumbles. Nevertheless, this drastic uptick in who can and does call themselves a bestseller caught my attention. I can't say that I was entirely surprised by what I found after a little bit of digging, but I can say that it wasn't exactly what I had expected. Most notably, it turns out that the term bestseller is entirely unregulated. There's no standard legal definition, meaning that if you really wanted, you could just say that you're a bestseller and no one can really do anything about it. In fact, on the flip side of things, I could actually create my own bestseller list defined entirely by my own purchasing habits, put it on my website with a little bit of a write-up, and start granting bestseller titles. This week, that would go to Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. I bought two copies so that my partner and I could read it together, and it's really good. You should give it a try. And there you have it, the first Cat's Bestseller List honoree. And that's holding my selection process to a higher criteria than some others. Obviously, I'm poking a bit of fun here, but this is still a fact worth pointing out. After all, if anyone can call themselves a bestseller and anyone can make a bestseller list, where does that leave us, the readers, and the authors? But the lack of regulation wasn't the only thing that came up in my search. While digging, I came across the story of a lawsuit between author William Peter Blatty and our episode icon, The New York Times. Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist, claimed that his second sequel, Legion, had sold enough copies to qualify for the bestseller list in 1983. However, he claims it was intentionally left off. According to him, this cost him potential sales from the boost in visibility. In other words, he felt like he would have turned a better profit if the New York Times had just done their job and featured him like they should have. Here's where it gets interesting. The New York Times came to its own defense not by refuting the fact that Blatty sold enough to make the list, but by arguing that their bestseller list isn't a factual representation of which books are best-selling. Instead, they claim that their list is curated, editorial work, and therefore protected by the First Amendment. To both my, and I assume, Blatty's surprise, the court agreed with the Times, and when Blatty tried to appeal that ruling, his complaint was thrown out altogether. Now, even if there is some sound legal reasoning to the lax regulation of the term bestseller, it does raise another question. 
if the term bestseller can be arbitrarily applied by both an author as well as by a publication, what does it even mean? Well, according to a Slate article from 1998, about as much as the phrase original recipe does on a jar of spaghetti sauce. That might sound harsh, but given everything we've already talked about, it's hard not to see where the sentiment comes from. As humans, we want things to make sense, to feel fair, or whatever the closest approximation to fair is. But fair, in all facets of the publishing industry, including bestseller lists, is starting to feel like a different kind of four-letter word. For decades, the rumors of nepotism, backroom dealings, and it's not what, but who you know, have grown. Literary agents are inundated with prospective new clients and becoming harder and harder to secure for yourself. In the meantime, author advances have been slashed alongside what's considered a fair share of the profit. On your own damn book. The alternative? Self-publishing. Which doesn't just mean formatting your manuscript for an e-reader, it means taking on all the roles of a traditional publishing house. Securing the necessary rounds of editing, the formatting, and... Oh yeah, all the marketing processes that go into trying to secure the bestseller status in the first place. So even after all that, after making it through the minefield of publication, there is still no guarantee that your book will get a fair shake at making a bestseller list. Even if it's best-selling. And when you look at it that way, it's hard to not agree with Eliza Truitt, who is the author of that Slate article I mentioned. By the way, you didn't hear me wrong. I did say that it was from 1998, some 25 years ago. Unsurprisingly, I'm not the first person to raise a brow at how ambiguous the world of bestsellers is. Not only am I not the first person to be curious, I'm not even the 50th or probably the second hundredth. Criticism of bestseller lists has existed since their inception. There are op-eds, alleged exposés, and even a handful or two of YouTube videos from passionate book lovers who want to shine some light on how it all comes together. Which is a good question. How does it all come together? Well, it might not surprise you at this point, but nobody really knows. At least, nobody outside of the people who make these lists. Some are pretty straightforward. They're exactly what they say they are, a ranked list of the best-selling books based on numbers. Amazon, for instance, doesn't curate their list at all, which isn't without its own criticisms, but we'll leave those for now. Other bestseller lists will take data from aggregation firms like NPD BookScan and massage those numbers with supplementary information to reach a more well-rounded number. But we don't really know what that massaging means on the back end. The New York Times, however, keeps the secret recipe to their bestseller list under lock and key. They claim to not use aggregates like BookScan and instead use a proprietary, or specific to them, process to determine their bestseller list. They justify this move, like many others do, by claiming that revealing their approach would open them up to pressure or manipulation. The problem with this secrecy is, what little we do know, or at least what rumors have reached the general public, deserves some scrutiny. For instance, it's said that the New York Times actually provides booksellers with a list of books that they suspect might become bestsellers, rather than waiting and seeing how the numbers shake out on their own. 
This has been criticized as leading the results because it may encourage booksellers to feature or create displays based on the list, essentially giving those books a shot at additional sales. And where does the Times get the names for this list of potential bestsellers? Well, that's rumored to come from inside the publishing industry itself. Editors, agents, or publishing houses may drop a hint about an upcoming or newly released book with best-selling potential. And it's important to note that while this might not feel right to you or me, none of it is technically illegal. This is part of what's protected by the term bestseller being unregulated. It's also not the only criticism. Bestseller lists in general, not just the New York Times, have been criticized for their tendency to favor books that have gone through traditional publishing. After all, getting on a bestseller list takes more than just luck, it takes sales. And getting people to buy your book, especially enough to rank on a bestseller list, is no easy feat on your own. Now, sure, if you don't have a publishing house footing the bill, you can always pay a marketing organization to help you and they may even guarantee you a coveted spot on a bestseller list, but that's going to cost you. And if you don't have the cash to burn, well, you're kind of on your own. On top of that, a bestseller list doesn't actually tell us what book sells the best, not really. Instead, they tell us what book is selling the fastest in a given time period. And this is an important distinction to make for two reasons. Firstly, this means that a book that sells only 10,000 copies but in a short period of time might make a bestseller list, where a book that sells 100,000 copies but takes a longer time to do so may never be crowned bestseller at all. The second reason this is important is it's this exact dynamic that has allowed a number of people to cheat their way there. You see, if you manage to figure out where the bestseller lists are getting their data, and you happen to be careful enough about how you do it, you can strategically buy enough copies of your own book to secure yourself a spot. In 1995, authors of a book called The Discipline of Market Leaders colluded to get their book onto the bestseller charts. They, allegedly, purchased over 10,000 copies in order to land on the New York Times bestseller list and reap all of the benefits. 20 years later, in July of 2015, this controversy would strike again with Senator Ted Cruz's book A Time for Truth. This time, the New York Times chose to exclude the entry due to concerns over sales manipulation. However, just two years later, in 2017, a YA novel called A Handbook for Mortals shot to the top of the list only to later be removed entirely after the reading community raised several suspicions. To give whatever credit is due to the New York Times, they do now try to take some steps to let you know if they think that a book that has made their list may have had some help. Specifically, this is denoted by a dagger symbol by any questionable entries, but I'm not quite sure that that's enough. And this last point that I want to make, it isn't exactly a criticism of bestseller lists or how they come together, but it's something that I think is still worth considering, a question worth answering. Is a best-selling book necessarily a great or even a good book? Well, the simple answer appears to be no, at least not according to a slew of literary critics while Stephanie Meyer's Twilight was dominating the sales charts, and doubly so for the fanfiction-turned-mega-sensation Fifty Shades of Grey from E.L. James. Even already-beloved franchises aren't safe from the bad bestsellers moniker. 
Now, the fact that a best-selling book isn't necessarily the best book may seem obvious when it's laid out in front of you, and maybe a lot of what I've said is old news to you, but it's still affecting people today. These lists have real-world impact on authors and publishers. They help decide who gets book deals and who, well, you heard the intro. And all of this means that they also have an impact on who gets read. Analysis done by the Stanford Business School suggests that the majority of book buyers use bestseller lists as an indication of what's worth reading. And if I'm honest, I'm one of them. It wasn't so long ago that I wanted to pick up a few new mystery novels, but didn't have a clue where to start with authors or subgenres. I didn't even know what era I wanted to read, just that I wanted someone to put a bunch of options in front of me as a jumping off point. So I reached for my browser and searched something vague like best-selling mystery novels and opened two or three lists in different tabs. Now, I'm not telling this story just to embarrass myself publicly, but to say that I am not immune to the illusion that a bestseller list means something more than immediate sales. The word best is right there, right? And on the flip side, as a writer, I'm also not totally immune to the siren song of becoming a bestseller. I would be lying if I said that, to some degree, I didn't hope to see my name printed next to the glossy number one. But I'd also be lying if I said that I didn't think that perspective needs some questioning. No matter how you slice it, we live in a reality where best is often seen as the only acceptable outcome and anything less is unworthy or just plain bad. This is a culture of more and better and faster and if we aren't careful, we can lose ourselves in some truly great stories in the process. To be clear, I don't hate bestseller lists, although I would forgive you if uh, you didn't take that away from this episode. In reality, I do really appreciate that they offer recognition and goalposts for hardworking authors. I love that they help readers find their next bookmate. And more than anything, I really appreciate that bestseller lists continue to help traditional publishing stay afloat. I don't want to see that industry leave. What I do want is for you and me to be a little bit more aware of what being a bestseller really means. That's all I have for you today. But before I let you go, I want to share part of a conversation I had with a colleague of mine, Jesse Winter. He's been running his own book editing agency for the past few years and had a few thoughts to share when I bent his ear on bestsellers. Here he is to introduce himself a little bit more. My name is Jesse Winter. I'm the founder of Duo Storytelling, which is a book editing company. So I'm the lead editor and kind of wrangle all the, the people in the company to, to put out awesome books for first time and emerging authors. How long have you been an editor, even outside of Duo Storytelling? Yeah, so I started as a freelancer, um, and I've been doing it about five years at this point. In that five-year stretch, I just, I gotta ask, any bestsellers? Yeah, yeah, I've had a couple. Um, well, more than a couple. I mean, a bestseller list, um, in the best case scenario, is like lots of people have read it because the book is, you know, actually good. Um, and so having a solid editor or series of editors to get the book where it needs to be is, is super important because you don't want to have it, you know, I mean, typos are one thing, but you also just sure. don't want the story to be a dud or your character, your main character to just not like come off the page and feel alive. I want to ask this question kind of 
just to get your general sense, because I personally thought that I had one answer, and then I examined myself a little bit further, and it turns out I was lying to myself. So <laughs> I'm curious, in your day-to-day -day life, do you use bestseller lists? Like, if you are going to go look for a new book, do you utilize bestseller lists to help you kind of start that journey? I usually don't, if I'm being honest. Really? Um, my my wife does to an extent. <laughs> she she reads a ton. She reads more than I do, um, and so my um, I'm usually secondhand experiencing bestseller lists through her because she talks about the books <laughs> that she's reading and like if she thinks a book is good, then you know that validates that book from that list for me. But I mean, beyond that, I think I, I'm not going online and looking, you know, what the New York Times bestseller is or, or anything like that. I mean, maybe something comes up in my news feed and I see it and it's like, okay, that's that's a good thing to note. Uh, but the, the biggest interaction I have is probably when I go to a bookstore, which is too often, and you know, they have like the, the bestseller section or like new arrivals section of right. like the books that are like doing well. I see. I went in with the with the assumption that my answer was very much like yours. That I don't really utilize the lists, and then I started looking back at what I've read recently and realized, at every single turn, every single time I try to get into a new genre, I'm like, okay, first thing I need to do is I need to go to Google mm. and I need to ask Google what like the best selling books in these genres are of like of all time, you know? Yeah. And so. Yeah. I had realized I had come into this thinking like, oh, I don't know, I don't even really interact with best-selling lists. Oh, I so do. I actually do utilize them as a tool, which is a little bit shocking coming into this with some of my other opinions on best-selling lists <laughs> that I have challenged and reframed. <laughs> um, so I find that really interesting because my next question um, kind of goes two ways, both from a point of view of author um, validation as well as readership outreach. So do you think it's important for an author to get on a bestsellers list? Uh, I don't know if it's important. I don't think it necessarily means you have a bad book. Um, I, I don't think it necessarily means you have a good book. I think it's, it's a decent indication that you have a good book. I don't think it's it's definitely not a definitely not a perfect thing. I mean, if it's your goal to be on a bestseller list, what I would say, you know, actually write a good book and like take the time to like think about how you're going to launch your book, um, and like make that your goal. And it's it's not the list itself that should be, you know, the be all end all. It's just like make your book appear in the hands of as many people as possible. Find the right audience of people, the people who are gonna love your book because, I mean, artists need to be paid. So it's, it's yes. good <laughs> to be paid for the work that you're doing. Um, and if a bestseller list helps that, um, that's great. But what, you know, I think a lot of people who are authors um, do is they write because they feel like they have to. They have a story, stories to tell. It, it really is, it's just so exciting when, when someone finds a story um, that you've written and then they, they really connect with it and like you have this, this, this just different kind of experience and I don't think that's fully encapsulated in a bestseller list. You made a really good point about authors connecting with their own story and I, as, as a writer myself, I can't push myself to engage with writing something that I don't care about. So what I find interesting is 
can that co can that sort of sense of authenticity coexist with striving to be on a bestseller list and well you know we'll stop there i have another question <laughs> but, but let's you know let's just stop at questioning whether or not art requires authenticity oh, oh so that that's the question does art well, require maybe not exactly that but like yeah can can a book come out and still be true to the author if that author is pushing first and foremost to be a bestseller i think so i, yeah? I really do um I, there are some people who are out there, whether they're ghost writers or, or authors, who, you know, they their goal is to fill a particular niche. Like they can look on Amazon and see, like, if I write a book in this category targeting this audience, I will have a successful book, mm -hmm. you know, as long as the book is somewhat decent. Um, and it's it's really easy to get cynical about that. But the fact is, writing a book is still a lot of work. Heck yeah. Um, and, and making it readable all the way to the end, um, which is something that, you know, Amazon is more and more considering as it's pushing out book recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, that's a feat. That's something that is, is incredible to be accomplished. Creativity, I, for me, often grows in a space that's constrained. So, like, if you look on Amazon, you're like, I'm writing a book in this space. You have limits that you have to work toward. Sure. But like, you have this whole world in between. And if you can write something compelling, whether it's like, you know, a tech book or whether it's like a, a work of fiction, if you can write something compelling within that space, that's, I don't know, I think that's still really cool. Because how many people can say they've written a book? Um, <laughs> and then also just multiple books that keep, getting pumped out that become, you know, best bestsellers, even in, even in that one particular space. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. I already forgot what it was. <laughs> no, I, I think you covered it. The idea of authenticity when still striving for success, which is, I mean, it's a much bigger topic on its own, but I, I think you hit a lot of really good points. And one thing that I want to add on top of that is a personal view that I have um, and something that I carry into my work as an editor, as well as as an author, and that is that I gen genuinely believe that you can do anything you want to do, as long as you're willing to put in enough work to make it work. So mm -hmm. I, so my, my perspective is also, yeah, I think you can stay authentic to your vision, to yourself, to whatever you're doing, and also be striving for a bestseller. The, the transaction there becomes with yourself on whether or not you're willing to put in the effort to bridge those gaps. Are you willing to do the extra drafts so that it feels right to you and then also is sellable? So I think you really answered it well. And so I'm glad to, to add my little tidbit. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really glad to hear that that's your take. Because I think, as you mentioned, um, Cynicism is really easy in this space. I think it's it's really easy to write off um, authors as, well, you're just trying to make a buck. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am trying to make a buck because I put many of hours into this. Mm -hmm. So I kind of deserve it. Yeah, I mean, um, how many people grow up being like, I want to be a writer. I want to write. I like this book. This is like what I want to do. Um, most people don't get there. Even people who get on, you know, like an Amazon bestseller list, uh, like, you're not going to necessarily be like the next, you know, J.K. Rowling or something like sure. that. Um, it, 
doesn't happen very often. It's great when it does. Um, but just to, I don't know, just to, to have the chance to live out that kind of dream. And if you get recognition on best list, that's, that's super awesome. Um, kudos to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and actually to piggyback off of that, I think a really important thing to point out is that it's not bad to want recognition for yeah. that hard work. Like it's not, I, I genuinely don't think it's bad to want to be on a bestsellers list. Cause I think for many authors it's, yeah, it's about the prestige to a point. Yes, it's about like making money, but I think it's also like, I want to be told that what I did was good, <laughs> that I'm doing a good job yeah. and people like it. And like, I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah, well, and, and like you're saying, it, it takes a lot of hard work to get to that point. I mean, especially if you're doing, you're going through a developmental edit or something like that, your book is going to be picked apart by someone who, who's read a lot of books <laughs> um, and you might get some feedback that's like kind of tough to take. Um, so if you can like not only take that feedback and turn it into something else, but like actually get to the end of the editing process and get your book out there, um, that's, that's just a huge, huge accomplishment. I think where things break down is you just have to, you know, measure your expectations with the effort and, you know, your sort of, I don't know, baseline talent. I think talent's a, a screwy word. Um, <laughs> I think you can become more talented at something by putting in hard work. Yeah, um, developing like, skill. We're, and we're all starting in our own, our own places. You mentioned Amazon bestseller lists and that the Amazon, it's not necessarily, if you're a bestseller there, you're not necessarily the next JK Rowling. And that is actually an interesting point because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is kind of the cachet of being a bestseller. I kind of want to ask, do you think that now with the rise of how, not easy, but how many more bestselling authors there are, do you think it still has the same weight that it used to, like before Amazon had Amazon specific bestsellers and mm. like other, like there were so many niche publications? Yeah, no, I think it's it's an interesting question. I mean, Amazon really changed the game with um, like, it's all print on demand. So you don't have to like put a whole bunch of money up front to buy a whole bunch of physical books. People can you know, just click a button and then they print a book thing. So I think that the way people are consuming the content is is different than what it was before and that automatically changes things but i think you're absolutely right about you know there's there's so many so many categories that it is really easy to, to feel like oh if you became a bestseller um in this very like you wrote a business book about not not just like product management but like product management in a particular type of app or something like that there probably is some sort of category for like very specific types of apps mm -hmm. that you're writing a book about um does that mean a ton you know i don't know if it does and <laughs> probably probably not um it's great and i and there are lots of companies that can guarantee that you will get you know, bestseller status in a category, you know, like that. Heck yeah. And that's very appealing. And I don't think that's something you should shy away from necessarily. Um, I think, you know, what I would want to look at is what is the actual success of the book in terms of like, how long are people like reading these books? Now that things are on Amazon, you can get statistics um, right. with, of like how much people are reading through your eBooks. And if, if people are reading through your books, voraciously, you know, that's going to, to impact how sustainable your book success is 
in the long run. Like if if you just have like this quick burst and in your first week you become a bestseller in a very specific category, it's like that's cool. But I would be more interested in like, you know, an okay first first week, <laughs> but just like you know, if it sustains itself for years and years to come, that's pretty pretty cool. I'm I'm perhaps not that kind of person that I, I don't need that kind of label. I'd rather just <laughs> put out like something that's actually really really good that people want to keep coming back to. Interesting. So yeah, I, I'd say so. It's not so much that the increase in uh, the amount of bestsellers that there are in the world is necessarily cheapening the moniker itself. It's more of we should just be paying more attention to like what's having longevity because I think that's even true. We see that even in um, the box office, you know, you can have a mm -hmm. movie that kills it one weekend, their opening weekend, they make tons of money. And then the next weekend it falls by like 50% plus. So mm -hmm. maybe it's not so much about shifting our perspective of bestseller as a title or, or watering that down. I think maybe it's more of us shifting how we focus on it in terms of, uh, a bestseller one week that can't carry over is is more of the indicator of of value and quality and really like i mean the the catch to that is that somebody who was a bestseller for one day can still call themselves a bestseller <laughs> but <laughs> yeah but yeah. you know we're we're living in in the age of the internet where anybody can be anybody so we just have to take that aspect with with reality but I think, I think you make a good point that like being a bestseller in a niche category may get you the title and maybe that's good. Maybe that's what you're after, but it, it's actually the continued performance of that book. That is what an author go, I think going into wanting to write a bestseller or really going into wanting to write at all, I think focusing on the longevity and how uh, a reader might engage with that long term. I think that is definitely probably the better focus. Yeah, well, and the interesting thing you, you, you talk about, like someone being a bestseller one week and then not the other, you know, you could just launch your book on a really bad week where someone else just like puts out like the, the book that will be the thing that defines that, that category for, <laughs> for years and years to come. And like you may have had bestseller status and then like something really, really good comes out or there, you know, you might just have like a really solid competitor. Now that we've kind of talked a little bit about bestseller lists and weighed how necessary, how useful, how measure, like how um, validating they are, I want to ask you a question that uh, I'm actually, I've been dying to ask you. <laughs> so knowing that bestseller lists um, are used primarily for marketing and, and knowing that there are even companies that can help guarantee you bestseller positions. Do you think that it is ever okay to cheat your way onto a bestseller list? Cause we've seen it happen. Interesting. Uh, also interesting that you, you've been wanting to ask me this question for a long time. I wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably like the most ethically versed person I know, just given your educational background. And so I'm, I'm curious, I want to know. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about the educational background, I mean, we can talk about like, which ethical framework are you using to evaluate this question? Are you coming from like a, a consequentialist perspective where it's all about the, 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 the consequences of your action that determine that acts moral content, or if you're coming from like a rules-based perspective where it's like, no, this is just 
full on wrong. And so it's it's the rules and the intention you have in doing an act that determine the moral content. Sure. Well, I don't think that's really. I don't. I don't know if that's actually what you would want to talk about. I mean, I, think, I guess more in 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 plain terms just like from your yeah. perspective is there ever a scenario like if an author came to you because what here's here's what comes to my mind and it's something that's been playing over and over is like i have had clients come to me and say i i need this to be a bestseller not want they say i need this to be a bestseller and while i don't think that that level of severity is necessarily true i also think that they're being sincere and i think that it comes from a place not of like wanting to be a bestseller to be a bestseller or wanting the prestige, but I think that there is a growing number number of people that think that being on a bestseller list is the only way to make money as an author and in a way that you don't have to keep a second job. So if that is the case, and I'm not going to say that it is. Um, and I'm also going to say that I don't condone <laughs> cheating your way onto a bestseller list. Um, but I think it's an interesting thought experiment. If we take into account all of those hurdles, plus the fact that artists deserve to eat, <laughs> if being on a bestseller list is one of the only, but not the only, ways to secure viable compensation, is there a scenario where lying or cheating to get there is viable? Yeah, I mean, it's you're, the question you're really asking, is it okay to steal a loaf of bread to feed, feed your family? That basically. is the question I'm asking you. That's really the question you're asking. <laughs> I, I'm really glad that you that you said that, because that's almost what I led with. Was I almost, I almost asked you first, is it okay to steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? <laughs> I mean, I think... I, it's 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 there is there's a difference between stealing a loaf of bread versus getting on a bestseller list. It sure. does take resources in order to get a be on the bestseller list, especially something like the New York Times bestseller list. Getting on the New York Times bestseller list is vastly different than getting on the Amazon bestseller sure. list. Um, just the amount of capital you have to have up front to get on the New York Times list. You you have to purchase whole lots of books um, from lots of different bookstores. And you have to be savvy enough to, to buy like the right amount without getting caught by the New York Times and all of this, yeah. this, this sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I, I think the kind of person that's gonna do that sort of thing, um, they're, they're not in it for the book. At least, I mean, maybe they are. Like, I, I think it is really just about the status. Um, so <laughs> if you go, go with that deontology perspective like thinking about the intention i think they're like the intention really in some ways invalidates um that being like a worthwhile thing um i mean there's there's always exceptions so maybe your maybe your intention is something like if i sell this book i'm going to be helping lots and lots of people um and like maybe it's true maybe it's like this book that's educating people about this like obscure loophole uh that can help you you know, get rid of all that college debt or something like that. And people, all they have to do is buy this book for $13 on Amazon and then like, you know, potentially get rid of thousands of dollars of debt. Like that seems like uh, it could be a good thing to do, <laughs> right? Um, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it's ever right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there are ways when that's, that's a good thing. My thinking is like, if you have the resources to do 
something like that, especially get on the New York Times bestseller list. Why not use those resources to make your book the best it can be so it can win it on its own merit? Very good point. If you have the resources, because for the New York Times bestseller list, it's something like it's a couple thousand units you have to sell within like the first week. So if you yeah. have the cash to buy a couple thousand copies of your own book, you have the money to hire either a ghostwriter or a team of editors to and and marketers to kind of to make that happen or more organically, I should say. Um, so mm -hmm. the official standpoint is no, it is not okay <laughs> to ever cheat your way onto the bestseller <laughs> list. And I'm very yeah, glad I that you. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm just, I'm just a fan of the little guy because sometimes the little guy's got really great ideas, man. <laughs> I know, and that's that's part of why I asked because there is something about the the way that bestseller lists work, especially understanding that a bestseller doesn't necessarily mean it's the best book of that category or genre. It just means that it fell into the right hands, into the right categories, etc. So there is there is a little piece with bestseller lists where it's like you feel like there should it should be a little bit more accessible because you because they are such good marketing tools. But as much as I would like to also support the little guy, kind of like you said, <laughs> I can't condone cheating. But I am very grateful for you allowing me to to torture you with that thought exercise for a second <laughs> <laughs> because it also easily leads us into what I do really want to talk about now, which is, okay, so let's say somebody wants to be a bestseller. They have um, shelved the idea of buying their way there. They've decided to commit to making it happen organically. Um, and I want to primarily focus on people who are not being led through the process by a publishing house, um, because those people are getting all the handholding that they need. <laughs> so <laughs> I really want to take a look at what someone should take into consideration. I think a lot of people, they, they go at writing a book, you know, they just really want to write the book, write the book, mm -hmm. um, getting it edited and getting it published. Like that's something that, you know, they'll deal with down the road. Cause you know, who knows how long it'll take them to write the book or even have a draft that they feel is ready to, to go to an editor. Um, I think once you make the decision that your book <laughs> is where it needs to be, that you have a manuscript that's that's good enough to send to an editor. Um, that's when you should start thinking about, you know, thinking about your book launch. Like if you're going to start putting together money and resources to pay for book editing, um, which it can range in in price, but you know if you're it, you're you're likely going to spend like at least a thousand dollars. So I think. If you're gonna put those resources together, you should start thinking about what that book launch is going to be like. Um, and you know, maybe if, if you're not on social media, that's like where a lot of people are, you know, promoting their books these days. Like that's probably yes. a good thing to start developing. Start having like an author's website. If you know that there are people who would be interested in your book, like maybe you're a part of like some some discord channel or something like that, or like you're on some website where it's just like this community of people who all have shared interests. Like that's the place where you can start connecting with your potential readers, like start cultivating this sort of audience, give people a sense like on the internet and out there in the world that you exist as a person, that you have this story, this idea that you're wanting to share in book form. And so like 
have that foundation as you're starting this, this editing process, um, even before, and then from there, like as you're going through the process, like document it, like share the excitement with these people that you're connecting with, uh, share it on your social media, share it on your forums, whatever, whatever you're doing to connect with people, um, and, and have them be a part of that process. Because um, the long-term success of your book depends on you finding an audience, having your book find an audience. Um, and there are people who are going to love what you've written. They're out there, um, but it starts um, you know, <laughs> that early as far as I'm concerned. It really does. And adding on to that, I think that, that part of what authors should take into consideration is as they're drafting, I think authors in general, we should always be writing for ourselves first. But I think especially if your goal is to have a bestseller, I think it's important to do a little, to be ready to do a little bit of your own market research and take a look at who, what books are coming out in that genre, what is being done, what has been done, et cetera. Because I think that uh, informing yourself a little bit more on your given category is a great way for you to see, not as, I don't, I'm not suggesting that you copy what is in your category, <laughs> but I do think it, it's important to at least educate yourself on what's going on. Because the last thing you want is to go through a whole process and then to accidentally have produced something that's derivative or that's been done in the last two years. So I think it's important to know a little bit of what's going on in your genre, but then also to know your audience. Like what are the people who are reading this audience looking for? And that helps you do some of what you were talking about. So as you're going through your process, uh, getting to know who your target audience is allows you to not only focus your drafting on in a way that you think they'll enjoy, but it also allows you to create your own promotional content that is geared towards not only the book you're already writing, but the people you expect to read it. On top of that, I think when it comes to bestsellers, I also want to just put it out there really quickly that I think for most, in most cases, and this isn't all cases, but I think in most cases, to polish a book to that level, you're likely going to see yourself going through several rounds of editing. Maybe not several, but at least more than one. Mm -hmm. You know, you would generally, some some people think of editing as a one and done thing where they, they find somebody, they say, please work on this. And then they think, or they, they come out with the expectation that that is that their book is ready to go. It is published ready. So that's another piece on top of as you're going through and doing your marketing. And this is some of the part that you can also highlight and share with your, with your potential readers is going through the various stages of editing. Um, but really, I wanna stress that there should be some expectation of stages of editing. And that, that's important, I think, to prepare yourself for the amount of feedback that's coming in to interact with that feedback. Um, because that initial round can be a little bit jarring, especially for first time authors. If you're going through processes or rounds of, of editing, don't be discouraged by those rounds of editing. But um, yeah, utilize that time as a way to learn more about your writing process, yourself, and then also your end reader. Um, yeah, well, and I, I think another part of that is a lot of people, um, they, 
they haven't shared their manuscript with anyone before. And sometimes the editor is the first person to read the book mm-hmm. apart from the author themselves. And that's, you know, sometimes that's okay. Uh, but, you know, if, if you do have people that might be interested in it, especially people who are not your direct friends, who are not your, your family, because they can give you biased and sugar-coated feedback, have them read it ahead of time before even you know even before you get involved in the editing process this is called a beta read like they can give you a feedback on like what they really enjoyed what they didn't enjoy i mean you can also pay beta readers um, sure. to to do this kind of work for you um, but like that initial feedback can be super valuable because you you could get something fixed before you even get involved in in a formal editing process and that can save you you know, ultimately some time, it can save you some money and give you also sort of um, realistic expectations for what things are going to be like going forward. If your beta reader is telling you, um, or you should probably get multiple beta readers. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> if they're telling you similar things, um, that's a good sign of something that you might want to consider reworking in your book. Feedback is, is what makes, makes books good um, it can't necessarily just be your your little brainchild. Um, sometimes that works, but you know, usually usually things become better when when they are a part of a community effort to an extent. There is one last thing that I wanted to share with you before I let you go, and it's something that um, as I've been mulling over the idea of bestsellers, what it takes to make a bestseller, and everything there was a possibility that I hadn't considered until it appeared at random in my life. So I was walking my dog the other day and there was just an abandoned book on a bench at a bus stop as abandoned books are wont to be. And I saw something on the cover that tickled me pink and kind of blew my mind. And it was a phrase that I'd never seen before. Um, for, for reference, the book itself was called, it's not how good you are. It's how good you want to be. It's by Paul Arden. It's a self-help book from like the, from the early aughts. I want to say it's like 2003 on the cover of this book is the phrase, the world's best-selling book by Paul Arden. (laughs) (laughs) So I love it. I love it so much. Now. I understand now that that what they're trying to say is that this book itself was at one point the world's best-selling book, but what they've unintentionally said is that, well, this is just the world's best-selling book by this guy. And I Mm -hmm. had a moment of like, oh my God, every author can be a best-selling author because every author, like the second you publish a book, that is the world's best-selling book by you. So (laughs) if all else fails, it's your own best-selling book. I mean, that's a little saccharine and a, a very optimistic, <laughs> but it's also true. Like to say you've, you know, you've put in hours and hours to like write a manuscript, to get it formatted, to get it pushed out as an actual book. And I imagine, you know, as most authors do, you got your own physical version of your book. Sure. Like, that is like a really, really cool thing regardless of whatever <laughs> happens 